Hey y'all, welcome back to Well, That's a Problem, a social justice podcast on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abby Naraki, and in today's episode, I'm joining the conversation on T.I.'s recent podcast interview talking about trips to the gynecologist with his daughter. And as you've probably seen on social media, his comments are a problem for so many reasons. And we're going to get into a lot of those reasons today on the pod. And not to brag, but I actually did my college honors thesis on the history of virginity and social linkages between patriarchy and the impacts on purity culture. So basically, I'm so ready to rant about this and point y'all to tons of books and other references aimed at overcoming a lot of the stereotypes and messages that society has about virginity. So let's get into the rant. In an episode of the podcast, Ladies Like Us, that aired on Tuesday, November 5th, T.I., who, by the way, his full name is Clifford Joseph Harris Jr., and I just needed that out into the universe, talked about how he goes with his teenage daughter, Deja, now 18 years old, to a yearly gynecologist appointment to ensure that her hymen is still intact, meaning that she is still a virgin. He said, usually the day after the birthday party, I put a sticky note on the door. Gyno, tomorrow, 9.30. And then he goes, we'll go and sit down and the doctor will come and talk. And, you know, the doctors maintain a high level of professionalism. He's like, well, you know, sir, in order for me to share information, and he like cuts him off and says, Deja, they want you to sign this so that we can share information. And then asks her, is there anything that you would not want me to know? Okay, so we're going to be able to unpack a lot of the things that he's saying and break down all of the problems therein. But furthermore, he later on admitted on the podcast that he isn't as concerned with his 15-year-old son King's sexual activity. He's quoted saying, I definitely feel different about a boy than a girl. That's just the God's honest truth. I don't think there's any father out there who will tell you any different. And for me, that tracks. And again, we're going to talk all about why that is later. So the episode has now been taken down and the hosts have issued a statement distancing themselves from what he was saying, but this episode did make visible and explicit a lot of the persistent messages about virginity and purity culture that are still running rampant in our society. So let's take some time to talk about the history of virginity. So way back in like Bible times, right? A woman's virginity was originally very important for establishing and reinforcing the six Ps. Patriarchy. So this was a time when men controlled all the resources and the society is completely operated and enforced by men. So virginity as a concept is coming about in this same context, right? So already it's rooted in these patriarchal understandings of biological differences between men and women and that men are superior to women and have power and access that women need to gain access to through men. Okay. And so along with that is the idea that women are property. So the idea of, you know, to whom does this woman belong is also linked to this idea of virginity because originally when a woman is born, she belongs to her father and then then belongs to her husband after she gets married. Virginity is also important because of linkages to the idea of purity. So a woman is only morally pure if she is quote unquote untouched before marriage. So along with virginity being 
a sexual state, it's also linked to the spiritual, the soul, things like that. Further, procreation. So marriage is seen as the only acceptable place to have sex for women because babies. So because of the need to procreate, it was really important for women to only have sex within the context of marriage. Otherwise, they weren't going to be morally pure. Um, And right, this is something that is only really influenced by women. We don't see that same standard being enforced for men who are kind of encouraged to, quote unquote, spread and sow their seed, kind of however they want. But part of the reason that procreation is such an important construct to be related to virginity is because of ideas of paternity. So again, in this patriarchal society where men are controlling all of the resources, paternity serves as this kind of, you know, are these kids mine and am I therefore financially obligated to care for them? You know, so we didn't have paternity tests back then. And so the only way to prove that, hey, these kids are yours, so you have to take care of me and these children who are yours is by the idea of virginity, right? Like I didn't have sex before I had sex with you and now I have kids. So these kids are yours. Therefore, you need to take care of us all because otherwise men had no incentive to care for women and children. There was only that obligation that was established through paternity, which was created around this idea of virginity. And finally, and in a lot of ways linked to these other ones, is price. So a man would pay a woman's father as part of the marriage proposal, but women were only worth anything if they were virgins. So, you know, we have this idea of dowry that still exists today, and that stems from these these original practices that because women are property, they need to be bought from a father and then belong to a husband in marriage. And right, that also goes along with this idea of I am now financially responsible for them. I'm going to give you, the father, a financial gift so that, you know, the the extra labor that this daughter contributed will be accounted for in your, you know, kind of household income or whatever. But this extended really dramatically. So in the book of Deuteronomy, which exists in the Christian Old Testament and, you know, the Jewish Torah, there's this discussion on if a woman is raped, the rapist needs to pay 50 shekels of silver to the woman's father and then marry her. Because, right, a woman is only worth anything if she's a virgin and she wouldn't be able to be married off to anybody else if she had this status as being not a virgin. It would be very hard for her. And so that would create a financial burden for the father. So they had this system in place where if a woman was sexually assaulted, she would then be bought off by the rapist and then married to him because it was considered better for a woman to be forcibly married to her rapist than to be unmarried. Okay, so this is the context, right? All of these P words are the context in which ideas of virginity become solidified in society and linked to a woman's worth, a woman's value, a woman's moral goodness, and all of those things. And honestly, we're going to see how this extends throughout time. And it's really alarming how we haven't really gotten that far past it, even though it's been thousands of years. So later on, you know, as we we become more scientifically advanced as a society, we begin being able to test for virginity. And that becomes a really important part of this process. Like not only can we 
say, okay, I didn't have sex before, but there's also proof that I didn't have sex before. And so these children are yours and I'm now your financial obligation and responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of really wild tests for virginity that that people implemented in order to demonstrate to a husband and a husband's family that this woman was indeed a virgin. And so, you know, the classic one is displaying the bloody sheets after sex. So the idea, right, is that there was this conceptualization that a woman's vagina was covered by a layer of, you know, skin that protected her purity and moral goodness and that was penetrated during sex. And so with the the popping of that that covering over the entirety of the woman's reproductive system, the result would be blood on the sheets, thus demonstrating, oh, she was a virgin before because if she wasn't a virgin, there would be no blood on the sheets. And we'll talk about some of the problems with that in a bit. But there was also this thing called the neck test. So Basically, there was this conceptualization that women were seen as like inferior to men, but also that they were incomplete compared to men. And so men were kind of the physical earthly manifestation of human completion. Like, you know, the ultimate representation of a human is male. And so the idea was that during sex, a man's sperm would need to travel from a woman's uterus to her brain and that would kind of bestow upon women some of the intellectual capacities only accessible by men. And so there was this this idea of a one-to-one ratio between the width of a woman's cervix and the width of her neck and that during sex it would need to stretch and expand to receive both the penis And the neck would have to expand to receive the traveling of sperm to her brain. And so they developed this test where they would measure the distance around a woman's neck before sex with a piece of string, let's say. So, okay, so end to end, your neck is this big. And then after sex, they would take that same piece of string and put it around her neck again. And the idea was if those two ends still touched, then she was not a virgin before she had sex with this man because the neck did not stretch. So the idea was the ideal outcome was that when the string was then put around the neck for the second time, those ends would not evenly meet, proving that there was stretching during sex, which means that this was the first time she was she was stretched or opened up in this way. Yeah, and that was a thing that was really, you know, pretty common practice for a lot of folks. And along with that, because of the stretching and because of the idea that like a man's seed is being transferred to a woman, there was also this idea that the voice should also change and deepen after sex because of this masculinity that is being transferred and imparted onto women. So they would also look for that as well. My personal favorite, and I say favorite in a sarcastic way because it's just so ridiculous, is the urine test. So again, remember that it is conceptualized at this time that there is a complete covering of a woman's reproductive organs that needs to be broken during sex and that's what causes the blood on the sheets and etc. Okay, so the idea was that what they were going to do is they would give women a diuretic, basically, and a bunch of water and 
wait and see if she urinated because right if she was able to urinate then clearly someone had broken that seal beforehand and she was not a virgin let's just sit with that for a second like anyone drink four cups of coffee and a bunch of water and try not to pee go for it i dare but don't worry the spiritual leaders and scientists of the time came up with an important workaround on the off chance that a woman was in fact a virgin and somehow also peed during this urine test. The idea was that if the urine that was produced by a woman was clear, it was an indication that her spirit was pure and she was morally untouched and physically untouched and therefore a virgin. Because the clarity of her urine was directly related to the clarity of her spirit. And again, this is after having consumed a diuretic and a bunch of water. So pretty likely the pee was going to be clear regardless. But yeah, these are the kinds of quote unquote scientific tests and indicators that women were subjected to in order to prove to a man and her, her husband's family that she was a virgin. And there were pretty dire consequences if women were found to not be virgins during a lot of these centuries. Honor killings are still a thing today, but that, that's because they originated back then where you would be killed, you know, stoned, burned, whatever, if you were found to either have lied about being a virgin or just like, you know, found not to be a virgin at all. Because a father's honor and a family's honor and also subsequently the husband's honor was directly related to like, am I sleeping with a virgin? And if the answer was no, then he had the right to say, oh, I overpaid for this woman and she therefore deserves physical harm and or death. And then in the 16th century came along the Catholic scientist Andreas Vasilius. He lived from 1514 to 1564. He's a Catholic scientist because at that time, the only people who were allowed to practice science and be considered scientists had to come from the church because the church controlled everything, including science. And our buddy Andreas conducted a lot of experiments in the hopes of kind of scientifically understanding virginity in a physical way. So his experiments were conducted in the form of autopsies on virgin women. So particularly some of his, his diaries and scientific journals note that he conducted experiments on a young woman who died before she was able to be married and have sex and a nun, right, who committed her whole life to chastity and purity and therefore had never had sex. So even though she was older when she died, was still thought of as like should have been a virgin and so what he did was he was looking for that seal that completely covered off a woman's vagina. And when he was conducting these autopsies on these women, he didn't find that. He found that there was just an opening and that there wasn't a seal to be broken or popped, penetrated during sex. And so he was like, hmm, but these women are surely virgins. And so... Instead of just concluding that there isn't a covering, he concluded that these women's coverings must have been punctured in some other ways while living their sexually pure lives. So, for instance, they went horseback riding and it popped there instead. And he is the one that is credited with quote-unquote discovering the hymen, 
which is the tissue remnants on the inside of a woman's cervix of what was assumed to be that covering at one point. So now that it's been punctured, these pieces of tissue are what is left. And this obviously reinforces some ideas about virginity that we hold normative in present day, like that sex should hurt for a female-bodied person the first time that they have sex, and that bleeding during sex is a normal thing, both of which are not true, right? Part of the, the bloody sheets test is actually indicative of a woman being hurt or whose pleasure is not being privileged during sex and whose needs are not being communicated and listened to. So to all you listening out there, if you have ever bled during sex and thought that it was normal, it's not. And I'm sorry that you were hurt during sex. And obviously the legacy of the emphasis on virginity has rippled throughout time, where now we have gendered stigmas about virginity, where men are stigmatized for not having sex, whereas women are stigmatized for having sex. And even past the 16th century, there are a lot of historical examples we can turn to. During the Victorian era, so you're thinking like, 1860s to 1900s-ish, women were conceptualized as angels of the house, where they were portrayed as being too fragile and too delicate for the harsh outside world, and that their purity was directly related to that. So like they're too pure for the harshness and the reality of the outside world, which is dominated by men. So they needed to stay in the house where they could remain pure and untarnished by the harsh realities of the workforce and men being terrible. And right, this is again related to even if the woman was married and having sex for the purpose of procreation, that pleasure is completely off the table, that women do not enjoy sex, that it's just for the purpose of procreation because they're too pure to be tarnished by impure thoughts and sexual desires. And this was a label and a conceptualization that was reserved only for wealthy white women. So poor white women were not conceptualized in this way. And women of color certainly were not either at that time. And today we have these controlling images, which is a term introduced by Patricia Hill Collins, who's a sociologist, who talks about the ways in which the media and other popular discourses about women of color often portray them as being hypersexual, overly interested in sex, and sexually promiscuous, which was also something that was commonly conceptualized at the same time as holding these images of, of wealthy white women as angels of the house and too pure fast forwarding a lot and y'all this is wild like I have to say that I you know have been studying virginity and purity culture for years and this anecdote always gets me so in the late 80s and especially in the 1990s and still into the early 2000s there are these things called purity balls okay now y'all get this okay so basically they would have this like cotillion or quinceanera coming out type celebration for these young girls and these are, you know, young teenage girls. So around the same time as like a bat mitzvah, you know, 13, maybe 14 years old. And everyone would dress in all white. So this this young girl would put on a white dress and her friends would be there also wearing white dresses and her family and all this stuff. And it would be a big to do. Like this is not like a cheap party. It was like a huge deal. And during this party, there would be this big ceremony. This is the big moment, right? Where the dad would bestow a purity ring to his daughter. The daughter would vow to her father not to lose her virginity 
until marriage. And so then the father is set up to act as the keeper of his daughter's virginity until marriage. So, right, this definitely echoes the six Ps. So the father is put in charge of the young girl's virginity and she's promising to him that she will not have sex before marriage. And proponents of abstinence-only education absolutely loved this shit to the point where there were like tax write-offs and and federal incentives and things like that that were offered if communities were having these types of parties, right? So you could get, for instance, federal funding to have a purity ball. So think you spend thousands of dollars on a party and then you get a lot of that back because it's like helping curb teen pregnancy rates and sexual promiscuity and things like that. And if you're like, oh man, but like only girls have these, then you're thinking the right types of questions. But don't worry because equality, right? So boys had an equivalent of a purity ball called an integrity ball. And this is the same type of, you know, big party event. So what's different about integrity balls is that they would promise their mothers, not that they would remain virgins until marriage, but that they wouldn't ruin the virginity of a young girl because that young girl is somebody's daughter and future wife, right? And so at these integrity balls, the frame is still that it's not important for a man to remain a virgin, but it is important for a young boy not to ruin the virginity of a woman, not for her own sake, but because of the men in her life. So out of respect for the men, the, the men in her life or the future men in her life, this young boy is going to make decisions based on that instead. Yay, equality. And the U.S. is still the only industrialized country that provides federal funding for abstinence only or now rebranded as sexual risk avoidance programs. Cool. And a lot of people have kind of realized that society values virginity so much and have asked the question, how much are people willing to pay for someone's virginity? So there's been this trend of people trying to sell their virginity online. And this is typically done, you know, just for the money outright, but also people have offered their virginity up to pay for college or medical bills. And if anyone is a fan of the HBO show Big Little Lies, then you'll remember that there's a little subplot about Abigail, one of the daughters, wanting to sell her virginity to donate the proceeds to an anti-human trafficking organization. But what we see is when people try to sell their virginity online, the cost of a woman's virginity way surpasses what a man is able to bring in under similar circumstances. So if there's like an open bid for someone's virginity, it is easier for a woman to bring in more money. But when that happens, those women are often slut-shamed and heavily scrutinized. While men are often portrayed as sad or, you know, depressed kids who who just want to gain more confidence and find love. Right. So we have these really gendered messages about why a young man must be selling his virginity or what that means and what it must mean when a woman is doing the same thing. But this virginity rhetoric has a super heteronormative and cisgendered bias that erases the experiences of queer folks. Right. Because virginity is conceptualized solely as vaginal penetrative intercourse between a cisgendered man and a cisgendered woman then are LGBT folks just virgins forever if they never experienced penile vaginal intercourse? And furthermore, we can think about the consequences on that conceptualization of virginity on things like STI rates. If young folks think, oh, I can't have sex because, you know, it's morally detestable 
or I don't want to get pregnant, but then participate in oral sex or anal sex as a way to kind of skirt the official rules and still think about themselves as having their virginity intact, how does that erase their possibility and their chances in their own minds of contracting some of these STIs that are transmittable through anal and oral sex, which are sex, by the way. And lastly, again, along the same lines as needing to provide proof of virginity, hymenoplasty has been gaining popularity in the global gynecological sphere. So this is a practice where women can go into a doctor and receive a surgical procedure that quote-unquote restores the hymen so that you can kind of like get your virginity back is the idea. So you restore your virginity status to what it was before you started having sex so that your hymen looks tight and more full and things like that. And then doctors will be able to provide these women with certificates of virginity saying, yes, I inspected them and yes, they have an intact hymen. And now you can still find doctors that will provide confirmation of virginity, you know, at like a gynecologist, which is an interesting tie-in right to TI's request to his daughter's doctor. I just need you to check out her hymen and let me know that it's still intact so that I know that she's still a virgin. And that is, while super problematic, rooted in these common ideas about the importance of virginity and the ways that we can biologically determine virginity, even though this is a social construct that has been created and established and rooted in our society for centuries. So again, T.I.'s actions are very much in step with this historical legacy that frames fathers as in charge of their daughter's virginity and not their sons in ways that now compromise these daughters' understandings of their own bodily autonomy, their access and quality of care, sexual decision-making, and just in general, an understanding about their bodies and how they work. And I want to leave y'all with some recommendations for further reading and activism. So One book I really recommend is Virgin and Untouched History by Han Blank. It's a really good book that gets into all of the history that I talked about today. I draw a lot of my knowledge from this book. And it goes really in depth with a lot of the information about virginity testing and how virginity is a social construct that has deeply historical roots. The other book I would recommend you read is Purity Myth by Jessica Valenti. And she's a journalist who really gets into more modern understandings of virginity. So like early 2000s and 1990s. So she talks a lot about the purity balls and the integrity balls and other policy implications for abstinence-only education and sexual risk avoidance education and things like that. It's a really good read. It's really accessible. Both these books are geared towards non-academic audiences, which is great. And then I also want to recommend a couple of different organizations. So SICUS, that's S-I-E-C-U-S, which stands for Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, does a lot of really cool work trying to advocate for comprehensive sex education programs, right? Because a lot of the problem with the reason that these ideas about virginity are so persistent is that they are deeply rooted in our societal understandings of folks' reproduction, but also because we're not breaking down those messages at multiple institutional levels, right? Like you're not hearing this at church. You're not hearing this in your family because your family doesn't want to talk about it. Or if you are hearing it from your family, like T.I.'s daughter Deja, you're hearing 
just a reiteration of social misconception. And you might not be getting this at school either. So where are you getting these comprehensive and medically accurate understandings of your own body? And CECUS is really trying to intervene in that space and say, look, we're going to advocate for policy. We're going to produce materials for folks that are trying to be good sexuality health educators and things like that. So they have a lot of good materials and they do a lot of cool stuff. I would also recommend checking into your local Planned Parenthood and donating to them or volunteering with them because obviously they do a lot of really good work on providing excellent and affordable access to sexual and reproductive health services, but they also offer a lot of sex education trainings, both for educators in the community and for folks who need that education for them themselves. So there are programs that they run and you can check those out or make sure that those are available to folks in your community, that they know that that's an opportunity that they have to get more information about sex ed that they might not be getting in their school classrooms. And the last one that I'm going to recommend today is the TORCH program that is offered through the NIRH, which is the National Institute for Reproductive Health. It is a peer education program that centers black and brown New York City youth. So they offer a lot of workshops that combine sexual and reproductive health rights and justice education and also leadership training. And they operate from a queer feminist lens. And so they're really trying to incorporate youth-driven community action initiatives that foster like really strong community partnerships so that they can offer knowledge and empowerment opportunities for young people to like make informed choices. And they're also trying to really support the next generation of sexual and reproductive justice movements by fostering, you know, this, this awareness and activism. And to also, you know, bottom line, to offer accessible, comprehensive sexuality education that's medically accurate and inclusive of various identities and experiences. And so, you know, obviously this is local to folks in the NYC area, but I think they have a really good model for what this kind of radical sexual and reproductive justice movement needs to continue to look like. We need to be engaging young folks and empowering them to talk to other young folks in their communities about medically accurate and identity-inclusive sexuality and, and reproductive health information. So I would really recommend learning more about them because like I said, they're just super cool. Big fan. And with that, that's the episode and we will catch you next time. Bye.